Hello, I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. Some 2,400 years before it occurred to a Western thinker, the Buddha proposed that there is no such thing as a fixed self or a fixed identity or fixed personality that in fact <clears throat> we have what he called chetasikas which are essentially self-states or sub-personalities and the idea is that in certain contexts and settings we have different essentially thoughts and behaviors that arise in our behavioral vocabulary and then in other contexts we have other different behaviors and thoughts so right here, I have a certain demeanor, a certain way of holding my body, a certain way of, of thinking and talking. And this personality, essentially, that I'm in is a subset of one of many. I have another, another sub-personality that would come out when I'm hanging out with friends or when I'm working out at the gym, a much sadder personality in my case of the gym. <laughs> Most of us hopefully have a different personality when we're on some kind of a date than we are when we're with our families, I hope. So this is an important insight if you realize that you do not have a global personality, but rather you have a set of behaviors and thoughts that are activated in certain contexts, like when you're in a situation that reminds you of your family system, which we'll talk about in a little while, you'll have a subset of uh, behaviors and thoughts that will arise and you'll work within that vocabulary. So it makes it easier to be compassionate with ourselves because if we have a setback in our career or in a relationship, or in uh, friendship, or in internecine battle in our families, then if we realize the idea of subpersonalities, then we cannot globally just think of ourselves as some kind of a failure or uh, there's something wrong with us. At best, we'd be able to appreciate that in one arena of life, one subset, one sub-personality or one Chetasika we need to investigate and bring up to date. So it's a very different approach. Today's therapies like with Alan Shore and Pat Ogden and emotion-focused therapies that do not treat individuals as global entities with lasting personalities but rather treat individuals as having distinct self-states. It really <coughs> changes the therapy and the Buddha got there thousands of years before the West. Another profound insight the Buddha had was that of what he called Vedana or gut feelings, he said, are far more determinative in our actions and choices than our thinking, our logic. In fact, 
he suggested that gut intuition or our, what's called a felt sense is uh, profoundly influential on how we make decisions. A whole theory he laid out called Idipakayata talks about how <clears throat> in the chain of cognition, thinking comes about last. And it's way preceded by both thought, uh, gut feeling and emotions. And we now know this to be entirely true. It's been first proposed by William James about 100 years ago in the James Lang theory, but recently it's actually been definitively uh, shown via fMRI scans with the work of Joseph Ledoux and Antonio Damasio. Damasio actually has a very interesting theory about how we make choices that seems to be uncannily accurate to what neuroscience is showing. <clears throat> In essence, what he proposes, I'm going to use a Netflix model because I hope that most of us know what Netflix is like. If you don't know what Netflix is like, I, don't, I can't think of a more, at this point, common model. But they, So if you think of Netflix, when you want to watch something, you first go to the subgenre, like, I want to watch a comedy tonight, or I want to watch a mystery. So you go to the subgenre, and then all the different choices go out, or it could be a documentary. And then you look through them, and you roll over, and you can even read a little description of each, right? Are you following me? Okay. But when it comes time to actually deciding which documentary, which comedy you're going to watch, you don't make that choice logically. You actually just go with your gut. You just roll over each and then you see one, you like the image or the description, and something in your body shifts. Some intuition creates a somatic impulse to say, okay, I'll watch Dumb and Dumber tonight. There's no logical reason, of course, why Dumb and Dumber would be a better film than Kingpin or, I don't know, I can't think of many comedies off the top of my head, but you get the idea. This is the way we make decisions in everything in life. When it comes time to choosing what you're going to eat tonight, you might walk through whole foods, or whole paycheck as we call it, and you'll see all these prepared foods. Maybe you actually cook, in which case I, I bow down to you. Um, but there's all these prepared foods, and you just look at them, and then you see one, and your body changes, and you follow your intuition. That's Damasio's theory in a nutshell. You actually have to read through hundreds of pages of neuroscience to get to that, but we all visualize choices, how to get home from work, what to do for the weekend. We visualize, and then one image we choose, and that's what we do. Another way the Buddha got there for, first was, as I mentioned, mindfulness. The Buddha, well before there was any sophisticated neural, neurological view of the brain, broke down our experience into four different subsets. The first, he said, was the breath and how you hold your body. The second quality of experience in any moment was your gut feelings. The third was nonverbal mental 
qualities like your attention and your emotional state. And the fourth was your thoughts, how you interpret life. Well, it just so happens those four exactly mirror the structure of the brain. The first, the breath and body posture is controlled by your brainstem. The second group, gut feelings, is controlled by the midbrain or the limbic system, which is broken down into four parts. The third part, nonverbal qualities of attention, is your right hemisphere, and your thoughts are largely produced by your left. So he essentially broke down our experience in terms of the cognitive uh, expressions of the brain. To me, all of this is pretty fucking brilliant for a guy that did not have any of the tools that we have today. He simply observed his own mind. The fourth great insight, what I'm going to be talking about with a little more depth, is what he called Anasayas. Anasayas are unconscious behavioral tendencies that are activated in times of stress, fear, change, uh, what he called dukkha. And he said there are seven unconscious tendencies that people tend to revert to. They're, think of them as automatic scripts that we follow without any conscious oversight or very little. We just act these scripts out. They are scripted behaviors. They, we have no flexibility of, uh, or creativity or free will, largely, when we're in these, when we've triggered these uh, anasayas, these unconscious tendencies. I'll name them. You don't have to memorize them. I don't know of a single Buddhist teacher who knows these off the top of their head. Every time I give this talk, I have to fucking look them up. So the first is when we are under stress, we, as a way to try to suppress feelings of stress or emotional pain, we will seek immediate gratification, i.e. we will binge on food, social media, Netflix, shopping, Amazon. We'll do something that will create a dopamine release that will make the emotional pain be less apparent to us and will instead fixate on something that's an addiction. Many people when they come home at night and they're lonely will eat as a way not to feel their loneliness. Many people who are in jobs where they don't feel appreciated will shop. Many people will, <clears throat> when they feel they are in uh, other forms of disconnection and isolation will hook up with somebody on Tinder. Essentially, the attempt is in this underlying tendency to get rid of our disappointing emotional states through some kind of addictive binge behavior. The second way, the second under unconscious tendency is avoidance coping. We try to avoid situations that make us feel bad pretty common. And of course, in some areas of life, it's totally understandable that if there's somebody in your job that's really deeply unpleasant, you might try to avoid them. Or if there's somebody who lives in your building that's brusque and unpleasant, you might try to let them get in the elevator and linger down with the mail. But 
There are other times in life where avoidance coping causes more stress than what we're avoiding. Most commonly, it's when we avoid necessary conversations. When there's a roommate who is literally with somebody we live with, and they're doing something that is grating for us, and we avoid talking with them about it. So what happens is, not only now do we have this suffering of the behavior, but now we also have the avoiding being around them or whenever we're with them, modifying the topic away from, so that we make sure we don't get onto anything challenging. Sadly enough, I have worked in my counseling with people who stay in relationships, I kid you not, because they are frightened of the conflict they would go through breaking up. So they stay in unhappy relationships simply because they want to avoid the conversation of, I'm not happy. Another underlying tendency is relying on our ability to try to turn everything into a message or a lesson and trying to immediately figure out life in such a way that when we go through something immediate, emotionally painful, rather than feeling the feelings, we figure out what can I learn from this that will spare me from ever having to suffer again in my life. And when we do this, we come up with bizarre, insane conclusions. I've literally had men with a straight face tell me that that's what you get for dating short women, women (laughs) from Europe, women not from Europe, women from all different kinds of cultures. Essentially, this idea that rather than feel the emotional pain after the end of a relationship, we have to come up with some simplistic view or opinion that will spare us from ever suffering again. Not only does it keep the emotional pain lingering, because pain doesn't go away until you feel it, but it also makes our lives get smaller and smaller, because as we come up with bizarre lessons, those lessons lead back to avoidance coping, where we avoid something so our life gets smaller and smaller and smaller. We navigate around. Um, Grandiosity is when we feel overlooked, not taken care of, not appreciated. We can return to the fantasy of great importance and as a way to compensate for feelings of being overlooked. Stalling, not taking necessary actions, putting off until some imaginary event happens in the future where then we will take the necessary empowering steps. For example, when I get a raise, when I graduate, when I move out, when I leave New York, that's when I will finally get sober, take care of myself, uh, become more independent from my family, address the unhappiness in my relationship, and so forth. Another common uh, scripted 
is to beat up on oneself through self-doubt and despairing of one's prospects for happiness. So, of course, essentially, after a setback, rather than feeling the disappointment, feeling the rejection, launching into instead a cognitive exercise of that'll teach me, what did I think, I don't know how I got the idea I would ever find a happiness uh, or that'll teach me for opening up my heart to someone, etc., etc. And then finally there's outright denial. It didn't happen. Not acknowledging it. Our president seems to have uh, mastered that. Um, so all of these strategies really boil down. You don't have to remember them or, or take them to heart because they all boil down basically to we don't like to feel our feelings somatically in the body or as emotional nonverbal states. And so we will either avoid things that trigger the memory or B, we will launch into entire cognitive exercises, figuring it out, fantasies, denial, <clears throat> as a way to get rid of acknowledging the emotional distress, or we will simply try to push it away through addiction or consuming. The Buddha said, interestingly enough, in the Second Noble Truth, that every time we try to avoid feeling life, it causes more suffering than if we just put aside the avoidance, the cognition, the taking it personally, and just took a little bit of time each day to sit with and hold and nurture the emotional pain. That when we do that, sadness, disappointment, anger, all necessary emotions that are there to guide us to skillful behaviors, <clears throat> they arise. And if we listen to them, they direct us to wise choices in our life. And then they pass. And that's by far and away the kinder, gentler approach than trying to turn our experience into a story or try to self-numb now, of course, after any breakup or any setback at work where we feel really poorly treated or any family event where, once again, we feel triggered, we will, of course, need some self-numbing or at least self-soothing. Nobody's saying you have to sit with the emotions 24-7. That would be masochistic. And besides, the emotions wouldn't even last that long. They'd get bored and pass. Why do we have these anusayas, these scripted behaviors that we go into even without thinking? Well, these maladaptive strategies all started out as adaptive. Why? Well, because we all started out life as children and family systems and children 
even in the most enlightened family system, do not have power. They cannot set boundaries to the degree that they need. They cannot state their needs in many family systems without feeling uh, vulnerable to being shamed and belittled. Children cannot disconnect for a while until someone starts, a, a sibling, a teacher, a peer, a, a parent begins to act in an appropriate way. We cannot confront injustice as children in our families. So, as children, we learn to survive by essentially putting aside our, a lot of our core, natural, authentic emotions, and instead, what we do is deny our needs, we settle, we try to figure it out by ourselves rather than asking for help, we rely on grandiose fantasies to get through when we don't feel our needs are met. We learn to seek short-term pleasures. I was addicted to sugar throughout my childhood. If we're bullied, we'll freeze. We'll be flooded with self-doubt and denial. We'll stall. So in those, you can hear all of the unconscious, underlying, latent tendencies that the Buddha laid out. In essence, because these strategies helped us survive our childhoods, and because there's no one in our adult life who, upon graduating from high school or college, says to us, okay, we're now going to put you through an exercise routine where we're going to help you put aside these survival tendencies and we're going to instead give you psychodrama exercises where you can learn and practice setting boundaries and stating your needs in relationships up front and confronting unfairness. Because we never have this moment, we bring these hard, ingrained neural circuits that have become over the years uh, deeply hardwired into adult life. Now, some of us have Anasayas like Trump that are outside of this list, like lying as a way to survive. It makes sense that children who grow up <clears throat> in a brutal family system where telling the truth led to punishment that was frightening or unfair, it's understandable that a child would lie. There's nothing wrong with it for a child. But of course, when the child brings that adaptive strategy into adult life, it becomes severely maladaptive and people stop trusting the adult. So the key is that we have to move from very fast behaviors that are hardwired and that get rid of painful emotions to behaviors that ask that we feel painful emotions and ask that we take very risky things like setting boundaries and stating our needs. Of course, many of us don't enthusiastically greet this. I sure didn't. It's understandable that we hold on to these anasayas as long as possible until 
it gets to a point where we're just settling in work, we're just settling for crumbs in relationships, we're just settling in our families, we're just settling in our friendships, because we're not push, we're not being willing to take the real scary option of finally putting aside the uh, consuming the grandiosity, the fantasizing, the uh, stalling, avoiding difficult conversations, and we do exactly the opposite. So, <clears throat> I'm not going to pretend that any of this, especially the most important, which is learning how to state our needs, not only in relationships, but in work situations and in uh, all interactions, friendships, and if people do not meet our needs, being willing to take the risk of seeking new work, new relationships, new friendships with skillful people. So there's three ways that we can at least begin to take these difficult steps. The first is accountability through a community. If we find ourselves in family situations where we're continually triggered, we don't set boundaries and we essentially fall into compliant behaviors where again and again and again we just put up with disappointing experiences. If we go to Al-Anon and we hear other people talk about the same experiences and we feel, and by connecting and expressing our own experience, then we become accountable to other people. And then we feel that we're not alone. And when we don't feel as alone, we're not as vulnerable. And we feel a sense of, there'll be people in my life even if I tell my family system that for a while I need to take a break until they're willing to respect me. In my own life, when I got sober 23 years ago, I essentially told every fucking person in my life, people who didn't want to hear, people at jobs, well, I wasn't in a job, I was actually fired, but I went to my ex-boss. I told everybody, hey, I'm finally getting sober, I'm in AA, and I am not going to drink again, and I'm going to meetings, and I'm telling everybody <laughs> so that if I relapse again, that it's going to suck for me. I had to make it more unpleasant to actually continue with my addiction <laughs> than to actually follow my addiction. The emotional pain would have been far worse if I drank because I'd have to look like an idiot in front of everybody in my life. So literally, I stayed sober for the first year that way until my life got a lot better. Accountability not only works in a, the sense that we don't want to disappoint people, but it also works in the sense that we want to be a model for other people as well. We want to show other people that if we can do something, that other people can. So if we struggle in relationships and we go to SLAA, or if we struggle with shopping and we go to, I don't know what the fuck the program is for that, but I know there is one, 
If we struggle with gambling, we go to GA. If we struggle with binging on food, we go to OA. Then we begin our recovery begins to be a model for other people. And with those connections, we feel more empowered to take proactive steps in our lives. If you don't want to join a community, then at least disclose the experiences that are hard ingrained to friends. Ask them not to tell you what to do, but to listen and normalize the pain so that you can feel connected in that way, begin to feel less alone. The second is exposure. If we simply try to work through a deeply ingrained maladaptive strategy like compliance, not stating our needs, not setting boundaries, with, if we try to do that first with bullying people, a boss who's continually critical, we'll probably struggle because we're going to the most scary individual and we probably, <clears throat> in my experience, people tend to cast in their adult life people who almost uncannily represent the painful figures from their childhood. So very often our boss will in some way represent the worst characteristics of a father or a mother. Sometimes a boyfriend or girlfriend will uh, do the same. So it's very scary to go to the most important person in your life and try to set boundaries and try to put aside the avoidance coping of stalling and not working through necessary conver conversations. So the way we do that is we practice with people. We ask them to uh, essentially play the person. And in a, we practice saying what we need to say. We practice confronting injustice or working through problems in smaller relationships where it won't feel disastrous if we don't get our needs met where we can essentially survive. The more you practice, the more we expose ourselves. And I did this with my, <clears throat> my father, who was a violent drunk. When he got sober, he was still very bullying. And when I was around him, I would feel the same fear that I had as a little child, being with a, a man who was staggering drunk, beating up my mom in front of me, dragging me out of bed in the middle of the night, screaming at me. And uh, so to, as an adult, to set boundaries, to confront him with the times that he was being bullying, I had to practice first with <clears throat> a therapist, Chodo, who I was with. And we would go through the conversation and I would literally have the experience of what I was going to say. And then when I would go in there, I'd breathe, I'd relax, I'd visualize Chodo was with me and I would say what I need to say. And it turns out, I can guarantee you, that everything in adult life that's scary goes fucking much better than it did in childhood. In childhood, you're stuck. You can't leave your class you can't leave the bullies, you can't leave the unfair teachers, you can't leave the older siblings. <clears throat> but in adult life, you get to walk away. And if they at respond in a 
a negative or unacceptable way, well then you fall back on avoidance for a while. <laughs> well, finally, what we'll do tonight is connecting. The most important thing is connecting with the emotions that we have been trying to suppress when we fall into maladaptive coping strategies. All of them essentially are attempts to sidestep, evade, navigate around. Uh, so what we do is in this meditation, <clears throat> or anytime you want in a meditation, we visualize something that's scary for us that we need to learn how to do and we feel the fear, we purposely arise it in the body and we begin to hold it and create a safe container for it and then what we do is that old Damasio trick. We say, okay, how can we, what actions can I take to make this fear feel safe but also alleviate the conflict. And so we lay it out in our minds and we show it to the fear. And the fear, when it comes up with an option that works, will begin to alleviate. So it's a, it's a matter of, for instance, if there's somebody who's... Uh, if we, we don't, it, it doesn't even have to be with a, a conversation we have to have. If it's been a really painful experience in life and we want to learn from it, then instead of figuring it out or turning it into a logical exercise, we hold the experience, we feel it, and then we show it different actions we could take and we ask the emotional wounds, the sadness, what would make it feel safer. And when we show it the right option, the gut feeling will begin to shift. We'll have a felt shift in the body. And doing this, we're actually connecting with what Damasio has shown to be by far and away the smartest, most important uh, part of decision-making, which is the emotional circuits of the brain. When people have injuries to the orbital frontal, which integrates emotional responses, they can't make any decisions. They simply stall and stall and stall, and nothing happens in their life. So the real way to make smart decisions is by learning to connect with the motions that we've been running from, learning how to hold them, and then learning how to integrate them into our emotional decision-making. So that's what we're going to do now in the meditation. So finding a nice posture, and you do that by... Don't visualize your body. Just feel into, it's called interoception, feel into the body and feel the sensations somewhere behind your, or around your ears. See if you can find some set of sensations roughly around the ears. And then feel the sensations of your shoulders and then feel the sensations of the buttocks and then 
bring them all into somewhat of a felt alignment. So the ears are above the shoulders and the shoulders are above the buttocks and the hips. If you can develop a felt balance, then you will find that there will be less neck pain and less shoulder pain. <clears throat> so see if you can cultivate a feeling of arriving at a destination you've longed for for a very long time. That feeling of traveling a great distance, getting off the plane, then taking a car service to a remote bed and breakfast by a beach and you put your bags down you flip off your shoes and you walk outside and you sit before a vast expanse of water and at that time in life we finally give ourselves permission to arrive any thought about needing to plan something for the future is put aside we relax the body and tell it that we have nowhere to go. But the truth is you don't need to go anywhere to have that feeling. You could have it anytime you want. It's just a matter of, one, relaxing the body in such a way that you do when you finally get to those great longed-for destinations. It's a state of having nothing to do, nothing to plan, nowhere to go, <clears throat> and no one that we have to put on a social mask for or present in any way. You're in a place now where everybody accepts you for whatever natural spontaneous emotion arises there's no need to in any way change who you are no need to put on any makeup or clothes you're perfect as you are Nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to present for. Take a nice full in-breath. If you like through the nose, lift your shoulders up. And then drop them. You're now at that destination. Let your shoulders relax. And another in-breath through the nose. Pull in the belly. Hold it. And as you breathe out through the mouth, soften and then for the last in-breath in the series squinch the buttocks the toes the fists the face pinched face locked jaw and then release so for the first 10 minutes we'll simply 
practice trying to keep something in awareness. Whatever you keep in awareness is up to you. It could be the sound of the air conditioner and the noises from the street. It could be the sensations of the body breathing. It could be an image you hold in your mind, a simple circle, square, a candle flickering in the dark. Or it could be a simple phrase repeated over and over again. May all beings be happy, peaceful, and free. Whenever you drift away from your object, make a a sacred pact with yourself to in no way judge yourself, criticize yourself, become frustrated with yourself or impatient with yourself. Make this, if nothing else, your time where you put aside rigorously any thoughts that are negative about you. No frustration, no impatience, nothing but appreciation. The mind naturally wants to drift to thoughts, so each time it gets snagged, just bring it back. feel appreciative for your efforts. If you do work with the breath, I suggest a counting strategy. One that I like is counting one on the in, two on the out, and then three in the pause where you put all of the awareness because that's when we tend to drift away from the breath. Then four on the next in-breath, five on the next out-breath, and six on the pause. And hold the pause numbers throughout the length of the pause. Seven on the next in, eight on the next out, and nine on the succeeding pause.
so at this time I'd like you to bring to mind one of the following three scenarios, your choice. It could be a conversation that you know needs to happen, but you've been avoiding. It could be a situation in your life that repeatedly activates repetitive, binge, almost addictive behaviors, such as times when we obsessively eat or shop, clean, worry, uh, social media, situations where we feel driven to watch Netflix or television very often situations associated with loneliness or disconnection. The third possibility could be an unpleasant interaction that tends to happen on occasions and we don't like the way we respond. We either become triggered or especially we freeze We don't state our needs. We don't set boundaries. We don't confront unfairness. We simply, in some way, wind up back in that state of feeling powerless. So entirely, whichever resonates, go with that. So if it's a challenging conversation, visualize the other person as accurately as you can, not just their face, but a setting that you know very well, a room, a place where this conversation that has been avoided would likely occur. If it's a situation that activates repetitive craving behaviors, times when we come home, we're tired, we feel alone, disconnected, unappreciated, then visualize that scenario. And visualize yourself being unable to follow through with the addiction. So there's no food to eat. The internet has gone down. So there's no Netflix or social media. There's nothing you can text. So we're stuck with the loneliness. Or finally, the repetitively unsatisfying interactions. Just visualize yourself in that situation again with a family member, 
or with a colleague or with a roommate or with a friend Keep visualizing in as much detail and see if you can then shift your awareness into the body and feel where you would normally feel the loneliness, the frustration, the fear, <clears throat> whatever the primary emotional quality is represented by the body, go to those feelings. If you can't find them, just shift the image, bring up a even more slightly triggering. The goal is not to activate too much agitation, but at the same time to not give up if you can't feel anything in the body. And just find where loneliness, sadness, frustration, disappointment, loss, grief, <clears throat> wherever it resides in the body, just create a really safe space for it and turn and befriend it like a loving mother would a child just observing with no impatience or agenda for it to go, just observing. Somehow letting this feeling know that together we're going to change the situation. If it's loneliness, we're going to make steps to reach out and connect with people. If it's a conversation we've been avoiding, we're going to 
finally state what needs to be stated, but we'll do it together in a way that will make this fear or sadness or loneliness feel safe. See if you can visualize and show this feeling how you could go about moving into a mature, adaptive coping strategy. How together with this feeling can we confront people who are bullying, mistreating, not seeing us, not affirming our work, You probably won't be able to come up with a solution in the time we have, but it's just a practice that once we start doing it, we can integrate it more in our lives, feeling the feelings, holding them, caring about them. interpreting their needs and involving them in our decisions. So, very shortly I'm going to ring the bell and the request is that before you look around the room, see if you can just open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you and integrate sight into this embodied awareness that you've cultivated so that you're not pushing away the feelings, you're bringing them with you into the rest of this meeting. <clears throat> 